0: Employees are being, are being asked to do an awful, you know, a lot. And, and, and you know, as I look at it, I think, okay, what you just described to me, that's a that's a 15-hour day. Uh if you're if you're doing things you say you're doing, right, right. And and that's seven days a week. 15-hour days, seven days a week. And I wonder to myself, you know, is that really what's what's happening in the field? And 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 we're still adding more things, right? We stick a shower in there and we ask them to spend, you know, five minutes. Showering in and five minutes showering out, uh, we've added another 10 minutes to their, to their day.
1: Swine it. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It podcast is only possible with the support of forward looking and innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Biovers your manure management experts, swine management to the next level, cloudfarms.com. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Daryl Holkamp, who is a diagnostician at Iowa State University's Veterinary Medicine. How are you tonight, Dr. Holkamp?
0: I'm good, Laura. Thanks for the invitation to speak with you today here.
2: Oh, we're excited to have you. And I know maybe the the description of a diagnostician isn't correct, but I always kind of group you in that. Um, I know you do a lot of work in epidemiology. And um, let's maybe, before we jump into the topic at hand, have you give a little bit more of, a, of an introduction about yourself. And I know you can do a better job than I can. So I'll let you take the reins
0: all right now i can do that and uh you're right i'm not a diagnostician so we should clear that up by the way yes. uh, but i do work uh, in the veterinary diagnostic and production animal medicine department here at iowa state university i've been a professor uh for the last uh four years uh, uh started in 2006 so uh, well i've uh, been in, at iowa state for quite a few years uh most of my work laura's uh centered around biosecurity i i say that's probably where my my passion lies and and so I've worked on a number of things over the years, uh, also do a little bit on the economics of, of swine disease, uh, uh, helping evaluate uh, interventions, doing cost-benefit analysis, capital budgeting analysis, that type of thing related to animal health, but, uh, but I think the, the topic that we're going to talk about today here and that is biosecurity is, is the one I, I have, a, have the most passion for, I'd say. <laughs>
1: This episode's sponsored highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a symbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. That's N-A-M at abvista.com.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and let's let's jump right in on that. Um, as we were visiting just before the podcast, we were really just talking briefly about lessons learned with biosecurity, and maybe talking a little bit more recently about some of the case studies that we've certainly seen pop up in the state of Iowa around APP. And and I think APP is a great conversation. You know, we I've had individuals approach me and say, "Hey, is it coming back? What are we hearing?" And I'm not a vet, so I think it's good to hear from the vet. You know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And and let's walk through kind of you know what's been happening here in in Iowa.
0: Sure. Yeah. So APP, uh, of course, is not new. It's uh, been around for a long time. Uh, you know, we have ser- different serotypes of APP, and the one that uh, sort of has recently become a bigger problem is APP serotype 15. Uh, even that's not new. Uh, it dates back to, I think, 2010, uh, even some isolates in Australia, and uh, uh, even in the US here, it would uh, uh, periodically show up. Um, but recently, there's was a, an outbreak uh, in north central Iowa, where we had about 20 uh, wean-to-finish or finishing sites uh, that ended up having pretty severe mortality events. Uh, and. When they submitted diagnostics, it was uh, came back APP serotype 15, and so uh, that created uh, well, it raised a lot of questions. But from an epidemiological standpoint of understanding maybe how that uh, bacteria got into those sites, that created a kind of a unique opportunity where we had all these sites that were really clustered very tightly geographically, uh, and so they uh, in that in that area about. Uh, that was about a tw- 20-mile uh, radius around, let's see, just call it North Central Iowa here. Uh, there were uh, about 20 different outbreaks that happened between November 25th and about January 24th of last year, uh, early this year. And, and so, you know, it immediately raised the question of why is that happening? And, and by the way, there weren't really any other cases reported outside that area. They were all clustered right there. And, and so it raised uh, an opportunity for us to kind of um, explore that and to see uh, if we could, you know, pinpoint something uh, specifically that, that was leading to that. Uh, And so what we did is we, there was nine different production systems involved uh, that uh, for the, with the 20 cases, uh, most of, I'd say the majority had just one uh, site break, but there were several that had multiple sites as well. And so we set out to do an intensive investigation of all uh, for one at least one for all nine, we uh, we actually achieved seven of those. There was two that that um, uh, chose not to participate in that, but still provided some data to look at the the 20 and uh, overall. Uh, but we did did the seven, and uh, there were some, I would say some several interesting things that came out of that. Uh, probably first and foremost, uh, I guess when you look at overall uh, biosecurity in the wean to market phase of production, uh, you know, I, I knew that was not, you know, going to look very good going into this. And, and, you know, we, we knew we weren't, our expectations weren't terribly high. Uh, but I would say my expectations have re and reset lower uh, in, in, a, in that I, it's kind of hard to imagine that we could be much worse than, than we are today, but you never of course want to say that, right. You can always get worse, but, uh, but I would say we have a long, long way to go there. and, and, you know, we found a lot of things, I, I guess, that are, were concerning. Uh, probably the most significant for me uh, was when we first started doing these investigations, we were asking uh, the, the herd veterinarians and, and the, the producers, you know, to tell us more about the how rendering was handled. And not all of them use rendering. There was, I think, uh, uh, two of the cases we investigated, two of, the, two of the seven that used compost, but the rest. Use rendering, in the majority of of the twenty sites that that broke during this time also use rendering. And I guess what struck me most was how how little uh, is known about about that um, that event, right? And um, most of the time, when the deads are picked up, there's nobody there, uh, and and so somebody is is contracting with uh, you know. There's a single company in in the Iowa here that that does all that, and you know they get they're contracted. Somebody within the company knows about that, but the veterinarians don't really know a lot about that after that. And so we actually had the opportunity to have a couple of calls with, uh, with the rendering company. Um, and, um, you know, we learned a few things. One, one was they, they have geographic areas that they pick up in. And so they have a, a sort of a, what they call a, a, a collection station. They use the term reload station, but it's a collection point. And uh, so they have the the smaller trucks uh, that that go around have routes around the country, country picking up dead pigs, bring them back to that central location, and then they use a, a bigger truck then to haul them to the to the plant. And and so nobody really knew about that, I guess, or how that worked until until we got on the phone and, and talked about that. And so the one thing we weren't able to discern, um, we we learned that we we could have if if um, if the information was shared with us, but we weren't able to get that done. Uh, But we weren't able to identify the exact routes and the exact timing of of the pickup uh, for these. And so, but, you know, when you look at sort of where those happen, uh, when they happen, and we've sort of plotted those with the animation, uh, you know, it's pretty clear they were happening together. And so it's a good bet that those sites were on the common route there. And so we think that rendering was was a significant part of that, not the entire picture. Uh, You know, there were some other events, there were some repair events, uh, that that um, you know we we consider to be uh significant in this case very well could have led to that there was in one case uh it was not one of the farms we investigated but it was um it came out during the investigation that uh there was the, the day that the, the well the day or couple of days when the when the peak mortality was occurring, uh you know they had to get brought, bring some help in to help haul out all the mortality. And uh, the site happened to have just a single pair of boots and a single coverall for the caretaker. And that was it. And so the help they brought in uh, came in with their street shoes and street clothes and and worked all afternoon to haul out dead pigs. Uh, And then at the end of that, there were there were two of the three, total, but two that uh, came in to help the caretaker. Uh, One of them was was uh, wise enough to know that, you know, I better go home after this and change clothes and shoes. Uh, the other one decided that it, that he needed to, uh, to go to another site that same day and get something done, and that that site then broke a few days later. And so, you know, anecdotally, we had those stories as well. But um, there were several of the sites too that were in the marketing phase, and so those, you know, again, we explored livestock transport of market pigs, mm-hmm. and that too um, could have been involved. But again, that you know, these pigs were going all over the country, being marketed not all over the country, but all over the state. Mm-hmm. and i i just feel like it seemed to me that if um, if that were uh, contributing to a significant amount of the spread we would have found it uh, more widespread than just in that 20 mile radius so that's kind of some of the the high points for from that investigation more
2: mhm well, that's really interesting so i think you brought up a couple of good points certainly rendering i think is has been on our list for for many years and i'm not trying to pick on the industry but i again i think it's just something we recognize is that we're inherently opening up the risk of moving disease around on on animals that have in fact more than likely died from a disease and so um you know that one i think doesn't really surprise me but how do we manage those communications with our personnel staff and the repair staff because i've I've heard these before um, maybe not quite to that level but certainly we think about mechanics and so forth or welders needing to go from site to site and yeah. And so, what are you seeing, or suggestions that you have based on what you've seen that we can can do?
0: Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head—the the communication piece—and and you know what what's going on. Uh, I think more and more is, you know, especially since the labor market has gotten relatively tight, uh, more and more companies are relying on a third party service providers to to do a lot of that work. So, uh, you know, third party. Uh, Repairs, third-party load crews, third-party vaccine crews, uh, even a lot of the caretaker labor now is being contracted out to the third parties. And as that happens, there is three things that that occur. One is, um, you know, the companies lose a lot of control uh, over that. Um, uh, you know, the, unless you've got it written in agreement, if it's something that's going to take time and cost money, um, you know, good luck getting that done, right? Um, and then in, in, in some cases, you know, um, it's, it's even two degrees of separation, right? So they contract with a third party or a outside party to manage the site or contract the site or provide the labor on the site. And then that person is responsible for contracting with or somebody else for load crews and vaccine crews or something, you know, sometimes just manure removal, whatever it is. And so you've got a third party contracting with a third party. And so, there's no way that um, uh, you know you expect to have any control over it. So, second is uh, you lose knowledge, right? It, it, I describe it as black boxes, and, and that really is not too far off. Where you know, as I talk to the to the veterinarians and even even people in management, um, oftentimes they know relatively little about who the contractor third parties use. Uh, you know, whether they're exclusive to the company. Uh if they have an emergency where somebody calls in sick and they need another body there to help load pigs, where does that third person come from? Uh, you know, they may say, yeah, we're exclusive to the company, but what happens when they have to bring somebody in? You know, they just don't don't know. There's no knowledge of that. If they if they don't find a body and get the job done, they're gonna they're gonna probably lose that job. But if they if they bring somebody that maybe was at a at a site for another company the day before, nobody's probably gonna ask about that. And we've trained them well to do that. So the third aspect is what you hit on, the communication piece. When when you contract that out to a third party, that communication piece becomes absolutely essential. And I see this happen over and over again where, you know, something bad happens and, and in cases where they can tie it back to that third party, um, you know, after the fact, uh, they, they say things like, you know, they should have known better. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's you can say that, but the, the reality is, you know, they're not epidemiologists, they're not veterinarians, they're not even producers, uh, and, and so they have no knowledge over what, you know, they, when they do something really dumb, really stupid that we think is really stupid, they don't know that necessarily, right? And, and oftentimes I see this, especially with like manure removal, where it's a seasonal, you know, once a year they're out there and, and, you know, somehow we expect them to remember exactly what we told them last year. And so we don't bother to communicate that. Again. So it's when you, when you, you know, contract that third party that, that communication piece just becomes paramount. And, you know, it's important all, all up and down the chain, even when you, with your employees. Right. But it, but it's at another level, uh, when you contract out, you, you really have to, I think, spell everything out Make, in writing it really should be, everything should be in writing that you, uh, your expectations should be very clear and then, and then repeated on a phone call, right. Get on them before they show up to your farm again, uh, or at least periodically if it's something done on a regular basis, and to remind them, here's what we expect to have happen. And and so these, you know, in particular, especially the girl finish sites, you know, there's just no oversight there. Those load crews are out there by themselves. Vaccine crews are out there by themselves. Uh, hardly hardly ever have any oversight. And so, uh, you know, I I'll, I'll confess, if I were in their shoes, I you know, I'd probably do the same thing, right? I, n- nobody ever watches me, and I'll, I'll probably take the fastest and quickest route to get that job done. So.
1: This podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits.
2: And I think you also hit kind of that nail on the head for me too. You said that was typical in grow finish or happens more likely in grow finish. And I think that's that's very true. It's certainly what I've seen over the years. Sow farms, right? We know the potential for moving disease. We know that there's a great financial risk and they're probably a little bit more diligently watched than, than those grow finish barns. And, and certainly the labor is a little bit different there as well. But what else are you seeing in terms of differences between biosecurity operations on a wean to finish versus a south farm that we should be thinking
0: about yeah i think you know a lot of the things that um that you routinely now see on uh on set in south farms right like uh, bench entry and showers and um uh, you know uh, uh, ro- robotic carts to, to move the dead right or uh, power cart carts to move the dead um a lot of those things are just absent in grow finish right a lot of the things uh we've done uh in on the south side, uh we just haven't got them implemented yet on grow Finish, you know? And you know, I think the, the caution there too is we're we're starting to see that. We're starting to see some benches show up when we need to finish units. Uh and that and that's not a bad thing, but uh I would tell you by far more often than not, those aren't used correctly, right? They they're not uh, established as a solid, clean, dirty line. Uh, they're set up as um, a sort of barrier to, to walk around and and that's how they get used, you know? And, and, and so, you know, I think it's we have to be careful about how we put those things in place, uh, even showers, right? There's more people thinking about putting showers in place in, in, the, in grow finish now. Um but, And the reality is though we still have a lot of sites that are not connected. None of them are common roof or not connected by a salt hallway. And so you have people going in and out of the barns and, and, You know, I guess I have to ask myself, well, you know, how how much how good is that shower going to be if I've got somebody that's you know going to be walking outside back and forth the barns? Now, it's probably worth something, right? It's probably going to give me something, but it's certainly not going to be as good if we had everything under a common roof and then we could establish that then as a as a a clear line of separation uh, and single point of entry into that site, right? Um, and so that's, that's where I, what I see, I guess, um, you know, a lot of the investments we've made on the south farm, um, probably could work, uh, in grow finish, but, but it just hasn't been worth the investment or the time. And, and time is a big one, Laura. That's the, the thing I, uh, another thing that really struck me when we were doing these APP investigations where, um, you know, with employees are being, are being asked to do an awful, you know, a lot. And, and, and you know, as I look at it, I think, Okay, what you just described to me—that's a—that's a 15-hour that's a, a day. Uh, if you're if you're doing things you say you're doing, right, right, and and that's seven days a week, 15-hour days, seven days a week. And I wonder to myself, you know, is that really what's what's happening in the field? And 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 we're still adding more things, right? We stick a shower in there, and we ask them to spend you know five minutes showering in and five minutes showering out. Uh, we've added another 10 minutes to their to their day, you know. And and we had one case where. A, a single caretaker was, was overseeing eight different sites and, and presumably, or at least according to them, were, would visit all eight of those sites every day, had to shower in, shower out. Uh, and they were also responsible for vaccines, right? And so they had to vaccinate pigs and every pig care as well on top of that. And so I started to do the math in my head and, and, you know, you give them 15 minutes to drive, 10 minutes to shower. Uh, they didn't have a lot of time, right? If they got the dead pigs hauled out, maybe walk through once. And, check, make sure everybody had feed. My guess is that's about all we could get done, right? They weren't going to get any pigs treated. And, and certainly if we were asked them to do anything for biosecurity on top of that, that probably wasn't going to get done well either. And so um, that particular person I pushed back, I said, surely you're not, you know, showering in, showering out at eight different sites every day. And they insisted that they were, and the, you know, their, their supervisor was sitting right there and said, yeah, I believe him. I, 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 I trust that he does that. And I, I had to concede, okay, maybe he does, but I, I doubt that's much more than getting your hair wet and kind of scrambling through right? So, but but yeah, that's that's the other, I, I would say, um, you know, thing we see, um, you know, of course, uh, people that work on south farms are probably, are, are very pushed too, but I think it's it's at a whole nother level uh, in grow finish there. That the, the demand we put on on the labor there is incredible. hmm
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I've walked into a handful of growth finish sites over the years where the shower is there. Yeah. But there's a few cobwebs in that shower to indicate that, you know, the contract said I needed to have a shower. You didn't say in the contract that I had to shower in every day. You just said that the shower needed to exist and there's the shower, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, how do we help the producer or the owner of the pigs, you know, enforce those things and encourage people? Because again, we we talk about that a lot. If you're a contract grower, maybe you don't have quite as much skin in the game. Certainly if you're a third-party contractor you know, the look of the finances looks differently, right? Everybody's invested, everybody wants a job, everybody wants income, but the the look of, of the potential impact of not doing something the way we would like to see it done has greater consequences for those that own the pigs. And so how do we, is there anything we can do in all of your conversations with um, the individuals, the caretakers on the farms that might help encourage that enforcement?
0: Yeah, and and I I usually uh, start to answer that question with I'm not a training expert, right? I I don't I have not spent a lot of time, um, you know, studying how to motivate people, how to uh, train them, right? And um, but I but I do recognize that's a critical part of a lot of the biosecurity that uh, uh, control measures that we put in place, right? And and so you know from a big picture standpoint. Um, you know, I, when I, when I, uh, uh, teach students, um, one of the things I, I always describe is what's called the hierarchy of, of control measures. And this comes from lab safety. And what it basically says is that not all control measures are equal. And, you know, it says the best ones are where you can eliminate a hazard altogether. And so that may, uh, may be a case where if we can just stop doing that completely, then that's the best. The second best is substitution, and a good example of that would be if we could go from rendering pickup to composting of, of dead pigs, right? We're substituting one ha- set of hazards for another. Now, granted, you know, that's in, my, in that case, it's a much lower set of hazards with composting, but there's still some hazards involved with that. Um, the next best is what, what are called engineering controls, and those are ones basically that don't involve people, right? Uh, something of the nature of um, um you know, a good example I can think of it from the from the egg laying industry. Uh, Dr. Craig Rolls uh, uh, owns some fairly large egg laying operations, and uh, they've installed uh, conveyor belts in some of the uh, units. and And the conveyor belts take the dead chickens uh, from inside the building uh, out to the compost pile, and there's nobody involved in that uh, except at the at the end. Then they have an outside person actually that that deals with them as they come off the end of that conveyor belt. but but it completely takes anybody uh, out uh, from inside the barn, takes them out of the equation. They don't have to get those birds even to a doorway. They just, uh, they get them, um, dispose of them completely from the inside. And so that's an example of an engineering uh, type control that can really reduce the, you know, the, the hazards that are involved in getting those dead birds out the door and getting them to the compost pile. Uh, then the bottom run or the least effective uh, control measure is, is again what I'm not sure why they chose this term, but they call them administrative controls, uh, and those are the ones that involve people to to do something right. And when I first started talking about that, I, I used to just I would say, you know, and in the pig industry, we had very few uh, peer engineering controls. Almost everything we do involves people in some way or another to do something right. Um, you know, we have maybe have some hybrid ones where. You know, it, uh, people are aided, right, uh, with some engineering, but but very few purely engineer controls. And and I guess I always just took that for granted that that's just the way it is, right? And and uh, you know, at some point, I think it was actually in a, during a conversation with somebody that that used to work in the ethanol industry, which is you know another biological industry, and and now they were uh, through a family connection, they were managing um, wean to finish barns now uh for, for a family operation, and and so I. Quizzed them a little bit about, you know, I said, surely, you know, you, you have a good understanding of of biosecurity because you were in a, you know, a a similar industry, whether it's a biological process and what they said uh, really struck me. They said, yeah, that's true. He said, but, but he said, what I've been really taken aback by is how much uh, people are involved biosecurity in the pig industry, how much time we have to spend doing things. Uh, Whereas in the ethanol industry, it's a much more closed process. And so once they get the ingredients in there, you know, it's a closed system uh, while that's fermenting. And and so the, there's just less things for the people to do. Yeah, uh, and, and so in the swine industry, we have a very open production process where we're bringing things in and out all the time. Uh, and by the way, we've created that over the last 35 years. That wasn't if you go back to when you and I, oh, I better not speak for you, but when I was young, <laughs> okay. when you were probably still unborn, um, you know, you had uh, small family farms, um, had their own feed mill, had their own boars on site, right? Uh, they they were the labor. Uh, and so you didn't have labor coming. And so you had a, a relatively closed system, frankly. And And so now we've moved to a very open production system. And that's, that makes it challenging uh, from a biosecurity standpoint now when you've got all these things coming in and out uh, and and so um, that's that's kind of uh, where we've evolved to uh, there but my where that has led my thinking now, Laura is that you know maybe we need to start looking a little bit more at these engineering controls now there's a reason why we don't have those in place instead of the administrative controls right they're they're more expensive they require capital investment. And, and so I think it's, uh, you know, some of those are going to require some innovation to make those um, inexpensive enough, uh, easy enough to use those types of things. Uh, and so, you know, I think more and more, hopefully there's, there's going to be some entrepreneurial efforts and, and some really creative thinkers out there. Probably not, you know, not necessarily uh, any individual is going to figure this out. But I think over time, if we start thinking in those terms, looking for those opportunities, uh, I think we'll uh more and more find those and and I think you know some of the things that the swine health Information center is doing um you know with the recent funding they've they've um, uh, acquired through the food and found it, uh, sorry, the foundation for food and agricultural research uh to you know to to try to uh, stimulate some more uh, research and investment in uh, grow finish biosecurity that those some of those i think will will hopefully pay some dividends but but I really do think as an industry we need to sort of disrupt how we're doing things today a little bit. And, and look for some more of the, you know more of those engineering controls, especially where they they make economic sense, or at least at least we can hopefully make them make economic sense So, mm-hmm.
2: absolutely. Well, you threw out a couple of things there, just right at the end of, about Sheck and some of the things that they're doing in particularly and um one thing that kind of popped into my head as we were talking, and you you talked about it initially, you have been asked to go and do these investigations and evaluate what's happened and how it's happened. And um, and yet when we have our veterinarians do that, they may not be able to maybe have a a consistent tool, if you will, to to find the appropriate things that, that the vet community feels is important in these ev- investigations. And so is there any work that you're doing on that currently that would help our veterinary staff so that when they do have these outbreaks, they can get a little bit more information and be prepared to really uh, have something that might give them some information about what's happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as a little background on that, Laura, this based all the way back to 2014, I think when, when we talked before we got on the phone, I think I took us back to 2013, but, uh, <laughs> but it goes back even further than that, where, <laughs> you know, when I first started working in this area, um, Dale Polson, um, you know, came to me and, and had this uh, survey tool, PadRap, it was called eventually, uh, it was really just a, a biosecurity survey. And, and so you could, you could take that survey and there was a risk scoring system behind it and, and get a score and, and you could benchmark those scores. And, you know, I, I used that instrument. We worked hard on that. We had that web based and, and, um, uh, you know, I was always frustrated though, because the question at the end of all those surveys was, okay, so what should I do? Right. What, what should I prioritize? And, and I just never felt like we were, Getting at the heart of that question with uh with the with PadRap. And and I don't I've come to the conclusion that we'll never do that with a survey. You just there's just too much, too many complications, too many different variations. You just can't even remotely get close to um, discovering all those with a survey, right? and, and, and I, I use the term biosecurity hazard now. That's really what I want to understand. I want to understand where those biosecurity hazards are. Uh, and those lie in in the production processes. How, how they do them, who that, who does them, when, what they do them with. So it's the who, what, when, or, and how. Mm-hmm. And and so it, you know, at some point it occurred to me that we, you know, to get at that question, um, we need a different approach. And so I started exploring doing, you know, outbreak investigations, and and uh, uh, I found that that was a time when when producers were really interested, and in veterinarians too. Um, because something bad had just happened. And so, you know, they, they wanted to do something at that point, you know, they didn't want that to happen again. And so um, it just kind of, once we started doing those, it's, it, it, I felt like it, that, that, this was it, right. This was the way that I felt we could, we could start to learn more about how these outbreaks were happening, uh, try to do a better job than prioritizing where we need to shore up, you know, or, uh, at our put our control measures in place. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what kind of led me down that path. And then, um 2013 course hit and pd virus came into the country and that uh that of course um created a, a a common panic right it wasn't just an individual producer panicking after an outbreak it was a, sort of the whole industry panicking at once and and so um uh you know we started to do more of these outbreak investigations and uh national Pork board funds some of those and, and actually um i i did uh, one, but there were several other parties that had done some of those, and and I had the opportunity to summarize a lot of those. So I was given kind of all the reports, and one of the things that really struck me, Laura, was was how all over the board they were, right? And how they approached it, uh, what they what they uh, chose to investigate, what they chose to report. Uh, you know, none, none none of them were what I would consider to be very uh, comprehensive. Uh and and it didn't appear to me that it was very done very systematically. It was more just kind of go out and wing it, you know, you you ask questions. Now, you know, I have I have run across uh clinics, uh production systems that are more formal about those that have maybe have their uh you know more of a a structured process that they do kind of routinely. And so they're out there, but again, if you there's none of them are the same, right? Everybody is doing these differently and, and so um and so at some point. Uh in, in the discussions uh with, with uh, Paul Sundberg and uh at Chick and others, you know, we, we decided that we wanted to try to do that better. And uh the approach we took was to say, okay, well let's see if we can develop uh an industry standard, right? It's kind of an approach that that hopefully everybody would agree. Let's generally kind of follow that. Uh and so we put together a working group uh about a year and a half ago, and that, that group had just completed its work earlier this year, uh and and really you know, walk through the terminology, walk through the, the approach or the methodology, um, uh, you know, kind of put together a final version of the form we, that we intend uh, we, you know, uh, to propose to be used. And, and so we've got all that together now, and um, uh, we're, we're uh, getting ready to write that up in, in the Journal of Swine Health and Production. so that'll be out soon. But we're also running it by the American Association of Swine Veterinarians, uh, hoping to get the, the board to endorse that. Uh, and then um, SHIC has recently just provided us funding about, about a week and a half ago to uh, build a web-based version for that. And so mm-hmm. we just started that uh, that effort. And, and the idea there is is make it easier uh, for veterinarians to use it. And then um, with permission, of course, and, and maintaining confidentiality, we can capture that data in a database and now start to learn on a broader sort of industry basis than, you know, how these outbreaks are happening. And we're hoping to, you know, start to see some patterns in that. Uh, that will suggest that we need to focus more attention in these particular areas. So, mm-hmm. so that's, yeah, that's kind of where we're headed with that. And that's, that's been a long process, but, but I feel like we're we're getting to the point where hopefully that will start to have a bigger impact on, um, on how quickly we can learn uh, about where our mistakes are.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm excited for it. Cause I know that has been a long time coming and I can remember participating in the PED um, epidemiology evaluations and, and trying to go through those not just from a single farm, right, from a whole system, and it can be quite challenging. So any opportunity we can to take different events and put them together into one and look at it more holistically is definitely a value. So I, yeah. I'm excited to see that for sure. We hope so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm sure it will be. It is time to our famous.
1: Since 1971, Zinpro has focused on improving the health and well-being of animals. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to Zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, ThePigSite.com.
2: Well, Daryl, I see that our time is about up and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And since we've been on a podcast before, I'm not going to ask you all the questions, but I know we've been talking a little bit here today about some different resources or potential resources. And so instead of asking about your favorite spine resource book, might there be a couple of of resources that people can go to if they want more information today?
0: Yeah, well, uh, the – outbreak investigation forms that we used actually uh, we currently have those in a word document um, and so it's even editable uh, but those are available on on six websites so swinehealth.org uh, if you go to emerging diseases i believe at the top uh, and there we have drop down one of those is rapid response program and if you go to that page at, towards the bottom there's a link to rapid response resources i believe and so there's some training material out there on kind of how we think about outbreak investigations. There's, uh, uh, again, the Word document, the template we use to to conduct those, uh, and then even an example. of. uh, And so we we use the same document now uh, both to conduct the investigation and generate the reports. And so um, I invite your listeners to to go out there and check that out. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great resource. I haven't had a chance to get on that website in a while, so I'll definitely check it out myself. Well, again, Daryl, I want to thank you for your time and, and for our audience. Um, if if you miss it at the beginning, this is Dr. Daryl Hocamp, who works at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Iowa State University. Thank you so much, Daryl. All
1: right. Thank you, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to Nutritionist.com.